and welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Daryl Grove and I'm joined by a man who obsessively checks the Dutch provisional rosters. <laughs> His name is Taylor Rockwell. Hello. Hello. I do and was surprised to see that you hadn't already retweeted the Dutch pro- provisional <laughs> roster because the only person who checks that more than me is Adam Bells and the only person who checks it more than Adam Bells is you. <laughs> and why was it important? Why was the Dutch provisional roster important? Well, there was some speculation that maybe we could see Sergio Dest on that roster or the Dutch provisional U23 roster, which was always yeah. are also released u23 it's got to be u21 uh maybe that maybe yeah. that uh but he was not on either one should be noted that could also be because i think in order to represent either team he has to file a one-time switch because he has played for the u.s before yes so it could be that maybe he's like ruled it out uh but it could also just be that they had to call up a bunch of players before he had been able to file the one-time yeah, switch yeah. so basically things remain as they were um my thinking is, why would you want to play for the Dutch when you could play in the CONCACAF Nations League in October? I mean, that's the question. For the U.S. Men's National League. I team. feel like the Dutch FA might ask him that, but with an ironic tone. <laughs> <laughs> like, that might be it. That would be their whole pitch. The CONCACAF what now? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we obviously we look forward mm-hmm. to the U.S. roster. We do. For those games against Canada and Cuba, CONCACAF Nations League. If Dest's name is on there and he accepts the call-up, yeah. we can put a cap on his head and it'll be glued there forever. That's how it works. That's how cap tying works. Exactly. Yeah. That's it. It's there forever. <laughs> yeah, there are a couple of ifs in there, a couple of big ifs in there. Yep. One thing that is no longer an if uh, is whether or not Major League Soccer will stop uh, dealing with the Iron Front or sort yes. of banning the Iron Front, throwing people out, uh, because they announced today they're not going to do that anymore. Yeah, so this is um, kind of a victory for uh, MLS supporters mm-hmm. groups, right? They've sat down with MLS. Yes had a conversation, and the end result is that MLS are not going to enforce uh, the, the ban on the Iron Front mm-hmm. uh, being displayed at MLS games. Right. And then I think there'll be another conversation for next year about what the code of conduct will be. I want to say this is kind of a victory for level-headed discussion. Like, I really like the idea that everybody sat down and then everybody seems happy with the decision. I mean... Roundtables. Yes. Camelot. Like, there was re- there was level-headed discussion to, I guess, reach this decision. Yeah. I would say that this entire situation has not been surrounded by level-headed conversation, no. which yeah. is maybe a thing that has been lacking. Uh, but yes, it is still very, very exciting that things have gone the way they have and that yeah. the fans, in my opinion, pretty much won. Yeah. Well, I think, um, to paraphrase Winston Churchill, mm-hmm. you can always trust MLS to do the right thing, but only after it's exhausted every other possible alternative. <laughs> yes. So we'll be discussing uh, M- MLS's <laughs> decision as well as sort of the protest themselves fan- columbus crew save the crew is a really good example of that yeah, exactly right? there yeah. you go yeah. eventually did the right thing eventually eventually <laughs> well the yes yes anthony Precourt. yeah <laughs> took him a little while uh but i think on next week's show i'm gonna have a guest on to t- talk a little bit about like portland and fan culture and why the united mm. front uh banner was such an issue why it was Iron such front. a sticking point excuse me what did i say united front yeah well it was a united front was yeah, the yeah. campaign yeah my, i get these things confused it's know, that's why i'm here to make sure I appreciate i'm back that. and i'm here to make sure we get things well right. you won't be next week so we'll see what happens <laughs> Uh, when I when I talked to uh, my buddy from Portland about all things Portland, about all things uh, Iron Front and United Front and MLS, all good stuff. So we'll have that conversation next week. All right. But, and I think on Thursday night, we're going to have our sort of Americans abroad so far roundup. Yes, we're going to check in on all the, Amer- or all the uh, prominent mm-hmm. Americans abroad. Just check in on how they're doing. Yeah, yeah. just check in. Maybe what's been going on, why what has happened has happened, and what we'd like to see going forward from various players. Mm -hmm. But all of that is later because now is now, and now we're going to answer some listener questions. We've got seven good ones, and we've got some scouting, the return of the scouting network. So let's get it going. Adam Kalin asks, where would you rank the U.S. men's national team in the world today? What is the best and worst case scenarios for one year from now? 
So right now, FIFA mm-hmm. ranks the US men's national team at 21. Were you surprised by that? Because I was surprised by that. I was not surprised because the Gold Cup just happened. There you it is. You remember, FIFA rankings are always biased or really influenced by anyone who's played in a recent mm-hmm. full tournament. Yeah. And the US went all the way to the final of the Gold Cup. That makes sense. Picked up a load of FIFA points along the way. Hooray! Yeah, yeah. so I think that's... 21 is artificially high mm-hmm. because of playing in the Gold Cup recently. Yeah, okay, yeah. That, that makes more sense. Because yeah. it is the case, like, the teams immediately after us would be, I think, Poland, Wales, Ukraine, and then further back, Japan, Nigeria, Turkey, Korea. And and there were moments when I was like, "That's those are better than us, but maybe they're not better than us, and I can see it, yeah. and I had a hard time. But that makes more sense yep. as to why we're 21. Uh, thanks, Gold Cup. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Gold Cup. Excluding so- the final. Where do we rank the year? It's really hard, right? I mm-hmm. couldn't tell you if we would beat Poland now Mm-mm. or not. I couldn't tell you if we would beat... Japan right now or not. But my rough guess is that US is somewhere between like 30th and 40th in the world right now. Yeah. That that, that, feel right? That feels right. There's no real scientific way to do it, but that's that's my approximate feeling. The the US men's national team right now is like, it makes me a neurotic crazy person, basically, (laughs) because the more you think about it, the more... That's the ranking we should use, how neurotic and crazy it makes the fans. And the answer is very. Because like... (laughs) Like the more you like, like you can have sort of certain ideas that you're like, okay, it's Zach Steffen is the goalie. But then if you really pause and you think about it, like, well, but his distribution wasn't that good, and like there are other players. Like it's it makes you sort of go into this, like, well, I don't, are they that good? Could they be beaten by Tahiti? I don't know anymore. And I'm then say no. you start to get worried. <laughs> yeah, I think we're probably safe against Tahiti. But I think where, where did you put them? Thirty to forty. The whole wide world, but, uh, <laughs> Tahiti would not be. It. I say yeah, somewhere between thirty and forty. Yeah, I think that's probably about right, which would be like potentially just missing out on the World Cup, yeah, but right. making the there expanded one. That is about where the United States, yeah, feels mm-hmm. right now. And it, we're in the, as we, we talked about this last week, right? We're in the beginnings of trying to establish mm-hmm. a new style. So to the rest of Adam's question, what is the best and worst case scenarios a year from now? Mm-hmm. Best case scenario is we're very good at that style and we're beating all comers. Then I'd put us maybe top 30, top mm-hmm. 25. Worst case scenario is we're an international team trying to play a style that doesn't suit us and failing hard at it. Mm-hmm. And then I think we'd be maybe bumped down to like 40 to 50. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I've got some specifics in there. Do you have oh, okay. some, some uh, ideas of one year from now? I mean, that, that was just my idea. It depends, okay. it depends on how well we adapt to Greggy Ball. All right. So I'm thinking like the best case, like overall the look for the U.S. though in a year, a year from now would be uh, Destin Ledesma declare for the United States national team. Ooh. Sergeant Boyd Wea all continue to develop. Adams and Brooks stay healthy and continue to develop. Yeah, Christian yeah. Pulisic becomes a consistent starter for Chelsea. More on that uh, later. We pick up all six points in our first two World Cup qualifiers because a year from now we will have played two, mm. uh, which is kind of terrifying. The squad gels, plays with multiple looks. and We, we win the Conquest. Caf Nations League. Also that, yeah. sure. I'll throw that one in well, there. That, that is best be, case. That could be revenge against Mexico. Mm-hmm. If we win our CONCACAF Nations League group and then next June we win the CONCACAF Nations League finals mm-hmm. where presumably we would be beating Mexico along the way, we could reclaim CONCACAF dominance sort of yep. by winning the CONCACAF Nations right. League. Which would make yeah. me feel very good and would be the best case scenario. The other thing that I... Ledesma I would, hat-trick in the final. Obviously. Uh, assisted, for the US. All three assisted by Serginho Dest. Yes, yeah, Perfectly. Again, for the United States. <laughs> um, and then the final thing that would make me very happy a year from now would be if a GM is appointed on the men's side who we think is solid and we feel comfortable in I what they're doing. God, yeah, only Stewart's been mm-hmm. promoted to like sporting director, yep. right? So yeah, there's a GM position open. Mm-hmm. Worst case, you ready for a huge bummer? Not really. Uh, but the okay. U.S. men's national team, led by interim manager Jason Kreiss, picks up one point in the opening World Cup qualifiers. Pulisic is loaned back to Dortmund. Tyler Adams remains sidelined with injury, and death starts for the, for the Netherlands in the Euros. Shoulda. <laughs> 
Yes. Actual shadow yes. for me. Yes. Christ, it took me a while to get to, but that was the interim manager that I felt like was a realistic possibility if Burhalter went. Yeah, because he's the U23 coach mm-hmm. and he'd be available. So yes. they just get him in there. Yeah. But like Josh Wolf is leaving, so it probably yeah. won't be any part of Burhalter's staff. So Christ uh, would be the new Sarah. Bruce Arena's not coming back. So yes, I think that leaves us with Jason Christ as an interim. But that is the worst case scenario, yeah. I think, in my in my book. Okay. I don't want to focus too much on that because mm-hmm. I'll keep shuddering. Yep. I want to add to the best case scenario. Please. We qualify for the Olympics. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. That would be a, a year from now we would have done Olympic qualifying, right? Yes, and I think if we're going to go with like two or three things we really want to see, that is probably one of them because we want to Just see a marker of like, progress. I would say strangely like even like moving away from Nations League, like if we lose to Mexico in the final or something like that, whatever, I would want to see like at least four points in the two World Cup qualifiers, I would want to see a new GM who's we're excited about, and I would want to see the U.S. playing in the Olympics. I think yes. those are the three things a year from now that would make me feel like things maybe are moving in the right yeah. direction. Maybe the ship is righted and things are on track. For me, qualifying for the Olympics would – it's not like as significant just in and mm-hmm. of itself, but it's more symbolic because we failed twice in a row. Yep. That it's almost like – the weather is broken. Mm-hmm. You know, like here in Richmond when it suddenly stops being humid yeah. and things cool off a little bit and you're <laughs> yeah. like, ah. Oh. Right. I think qualifying for the Olympics after two failures would be, all right, the, fa- the failing is over. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> the failing is over. I think just not being consistently reminded of failure would be also yes. a positive step. And like watching the Olympics and getting to see the U.S. there as opposed to like watching men's soccer and being like, I know it's not that big of a deal, but if only the yeah. U.S. were there, it could be another thing to be excited about for the yeah. Olympics. So that's good, kind of where I want to be. Good for Honduras. <laughs> Should we move on to the next question? Honduran jerks. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> being at the Olympics. Yeah. Josh Nagy. Mm-hmm. Josh Nagy wants to know, why is it that Manchester City often get massive wins when Liverpool do so much more rarely? Mm-hmm. Which is a good point, right? Like mm-hmm. they're obviously Liverpool are top of the Premier League, but Man City won eight nil mm-hmm. against Watford this weekend and do seem to pull out those five nil, six nil results a lot more than Liverpool do. Right. Why is this so? So I thought I had like an automatic answer to this one. Then I looked it up, and this is why you do research, because my automatic answer was incorrect. But from that, I think I have an answer. So I was initially going to say that I think Liverpool are a team that are more comfortable without the ball, that they're happy to kind of have the other team like in possession because then Liverpool can utilize the pressing and they utilize opposition possession as their own attacking tool, basically. Not the case. Uh, Liverpool currently averaging 56% possession in the Premier League uh, games this season. That's not that much. It's not, but Man City are averaging 59.9. So about 5% more, 4% more. So I don't think it comes down to to the possession, but the statistic that did stand out is uh, average shots per game. uh, 16 for Liverpool, 21 for Man City, uh, and then Man City routinely getting two more on target. So then I started looking at, like, okay, well, why are they getting more chances? And I think it comes down to the key statistic here, and I, I looked it up because I'm not big on stats, but I did it this time. Expected goals is a massive indicator for me right now. Um, 11, 11.7 expected goals for Liverpool, 20.8 for City. And what I think that right, says to me... we're not answering why. Because Are I you think, getting there? I'm getting there because I think what that means to me is that while like like the difference in shots, like maybe f- like five-ish more shots from City a game, that is, that is not negligible. That is a significant yeah. number. But I think what the XG tells us is that City's shots are more high percentage chances, that they're getting better looks like when they are taking those shots and are thus scoring more goals. And I think a big part of that is because they commit so many more numbers to the attack and they commit like attacks from a variety of different positions. With Liverpool, I don't mean this to be like – 
like negative about Liverpool. They're obviously very, very good. They're top of the table. But I think you have that front three. You have other like midfielders who are more than capable of attacking. But I feel like a lot of times it's win the ball back, go as fast as you can, and get that shot off as quickly as you can. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't necessarily translate to a high percentage shot. I think that's it. I think you hit it there. I think when you watch Manchester City, when they dominate a game, mm-hmm. uh, they end up like moving the ball around, uh, having a lot of possession, mm-hmm. being up on top of teams, and then you end up with all their midfielders being attacking midfielders yep. and in the box, right? Whereas Liverpool, you'll more often see like uh, Wijnaldum, Henderson, Fabinho. Mm-hmm. They won't be in the opposition box in the same way that like De Bruyne and uh, David Silva. I mean, the fact that Kevin De Bruyne and David Silva are centre midfielders mm-hmm. for Manchester City, to me, is really, really telling yeah. because they end up just being uh, like really attacking midfielders, yes. right? So I think, yeah, they essentially just... Uh, commit more numbers forward and get up on top of you and create chances and like the fullbacks are all the way up and they really just leave two centre-backs back, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, so I think Man City just commit more numbers to the attack is essentially it. Agreed. And then I, I don't know this statistics off the, statistic off the top of my head, but I would venture to guess that if you looked it up, Man City have more goals from like within, like certainly within like inside the six-yard box, but probably within eight yards from goal. And if you looked up like tap-ins or uncontested goals, mm-hmm. I bet City have a lot of those as well because to yes. your point, if you're passing and passing and passing and passing, you get those sort of FIFA goals where the goalie's drawn out, then there's like a lateral pass and someone just taps it in. Even this weekend, the first goal I think it was is the beautiful ball in from De Bruyne that I think Aguero like meets at the back post, slides in, or maybe it's David Silva. But either way, it's like a sliding tap in from one yard out. Yeah. You're probably going to score those more so than like Trent Alexander-Arnold rips yep. from 20 yards out. I think there's also an opposition mindset where a lot of teams, when they face Manchester City, mm-hmm. they really do say, all right, we're going to bunker this up and we're going to just hold back. And- True hope for the best and then when Man City score it's kind of like the dam breaks yeah you know what I'm saying I think that doesn't happen so much with Liverpool it's a little bit more teams just don't come and defend deep 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 like they do against it's a weird thing you're right with Man City that like once that first goal happens rarely do you see like oh they scored in the fifth minute and then they didn't score again until the 90th minute it's usually they scored in the fifth and then they scored in the seventh yeah just morale is broken Mm -hmm. for the other team right Yikes. Oh. Yikes on um, Do you think we should do one more question before we, before we get to it? Sure. That works Okay. Me. Uh, next question comes from Guy Yedwab. Guy Yedwab says, you brought this on yourselves. Well, I think when we're talking about Weston McKennie mm-hmm. and Arsenal. Um, what do you know Unai Emery is trying to do at Arsenal? What do you still not know? So this was, um, we had a question about would Weston McKennie thrive at mm-hmm. Arsenal? And one of our answers is that we weren't quite sure because we don't quite know what Unai Emery is is doing at Arsenal tactically because mm-hmm. it seems to change week to week. Can you ask me those questions again? Yeah. What do you know Unai Emery is trying to do? Not much. And what do you still not know? A lot. Okay. <laughs> those are my answers. Do you have a deeper answer than that? I do. Okay. Uh, because we'll, I do too. I do, but like some of it is not from my own opinion, is I guess the way okay. to explain this. Because like we watched Arsenal and Aston Villa this weekend, and I still came away from it thinking... like. Am I not paying close enough attention? Like, why am I so str- like struggling? And and I really like wanted to approach this question. I read a bunch of different articles about Arsenal, different tactical insights about Arsenal. About like, okay, are they doing this and it's not working? Are they doing that and it's not working? And I think the answer is they're trying to do a lot of things, but it feels like no one really can say for sure what they're doing on a consistent basis. Yeah. That appears to also include Unai Emery in that list. And I think <laughs> that's part of the problem is they're doing lots of different things depending on the opponent. But it also sounds like they're not really committing to any one individual thing. I think that's it. I think it's he does like a horses for courses kind mm-hmm. of thing and changes it up 
uh, depending on who he's facing, right? Yes. Yeah. I think the other issue there is like the, the things that are consistent are the things that are driving fans crazy, which would be <laughs> David Luiz and Socrates still being your two starting center backs despite causing many problems and conceding many shooting opportunities. Yeah. And Granit Xhaka, I believe this week he's going to be named captain or already has been. And that's a player who I think Arsenal fans continue to be confused by because he's supposed to be this calming presence in midfield and he is very much not that for Arsenal. Yeah. So it's like he's sticking with certain players that like the things he is being consistent upon are the things that seem to be frustrating people even more so. All right. I do know I do notice one thing because mm-hmm. I was watching Arsenal Villa this weekend and because I was thinking about it in a Western McKenney kind of way. The thing he does do in Emery is he always has two central midfielders who are kind of told to stay central. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So it's like say it's Shaka and Gendouzi you don't see them wandering over to the wing or getting pulled out of position. I think they're told to like stay as a two and stay central and try and have presence in the midfield. And then the width seems to come a lot from the fullbacks. Like you see Kalasinic or Bayerin mm-hmm. or Maitland Niles, you see those fullbacks get really high and wide. Um, and, and they provide a lot of the width for Arsenal. Those are like the two things I can really watch and say, okay, I can see that Arsenal always do this no matter what. When you because say- whether it's wing backs or whether it's a back four, those fullbacks get high and wide and get involved. When you say Gendouzi, Gwendouzi, Gwendaisy, however you want to go with yeah. it, when you say he stays central, do you mean at all times? Do you mean in attack? Do you mean in defense? Yeah, I mean, like, they don't go, he doesn't go, like, go and overload on the wing. See, right? this is the, confu- see, I can't tell if this is individual moments standing out, but, like, this weekend, Arsenal's fight back, Arsenal's fight back starts with Gendouzi bringing down a ball, like, literally on the, on the uh, sideline and then dribbling in and drawing that penalty. Mm. So, like, to me, there's that, mo- but it's like, well, then he does drift wide, though, well, but I can't that's just things that may have got jumbled up when they went yeah. into 10 men. That could also be yeah. a good, good call. That's a very good point. Okay, yeah. so that helps because that was the thing that came to mind. Then I was like, but he did go wide. But that makes more sense. Yeah. Okay, now I'm with you. Now and we're it, back on, on the same page. And assuming, assuming that I'm right mm-hmm. in that observation that the two midfielders stay central, it, go, it takes me back to the Weston McKenney question and mm-hmm. makes me think maybe he wouldn't be a good fit at Arsenal because he likes to go a-wandering. He does. Right. He does, but he also I, – I kind of still stand by what we said, which is that he is like – up and down in the way that so many players for Arsenal are also sort of up and down and yeah. a little bit streaky that I still feel like maybe he would do just fine <laughs> at Arsenal. I, I do feel that way a little bit. And then the other thing that I still don't know is mm-hmm. what their preferred shape is mm-hmm. with strikers. Because right. to start the Arsenal-Villa game, wasn't it essentially a front two of uh, Aubameyang and Pepe, mm-hmm. right? It was basically a front two, maybe Pepe underneath him a little bit. But then other times you'll see like a front three mm-hmm. with like uh, Lacazette or Aubameyang wide, mm-hmm. and it just it just seems to keep on changing yep. and changing. And then sometimes it's a diamond, which he persists with in like the worst case situations when teams are obviously exploiting that and spreading the field. Yeah. Then sometimes it's not a diamond at times when it seems like that would work. Uh-huh. He has done diamonds a back three are for sometimes. Diamonds are for sometimes. Exactly. Well said. That's obviously the original draft. <laughs> uh, there are, are occasions where it's a back three. Usually it's a back four. But again, then you're talking about a defense that has allowed 96 shots on goal, which is the most of any team in any of Europe's top five leagues. Ooh, Double what Chelsea and Manchester United have conceded. Um, wow, in terms they're not, they're of, in terms doing of, well either. They're not doing well. Uh, Arsenal have t- conceded 10 goals already this season. Only Chelsea, Wolves, Norwich, and Watford have more. Mm-hmm. So you're seeing a lot of defensive frailties. And basically, I think the consistent refrain I've heard is that under Wenger, you used to sort of have like questionable defenses at best, but then such good attacking free-flowing soccer that it sort of balanced itself out and now you're getting questionable defense when they're sort of relying on the defense to see out games and then intermittent attacks on occasion 
They still have very good players who can score. Obviously, Aubameyang being the key one there, for me at least. But it's like he's kind of lost the consistency in certain areas that he really needed it. And although other areas have maybe improved, it still remains very difficult to say this is what they're doing and this is how they're trying to progress. Yeah. Would you say Arsenal play out of the back as well? Yes. Yeah, and I think that's where some of the defensive fragility comes from. It's just mistakes playing Mm -hmm. out of the back. Yeah. 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 It's almost like they're having... Berhalter-ish U.S. Men's National Team problems. Yeah. Adapting to that style. All right, so Berhalter in, Unai Emery in for the U.S. Men's National Team. Yeah, I mean, he does ideas. feel like a national team manager, Unai Emery. Because like, yeah, yeah. everything you hear about him is how he's not a, he's not a like, I want control of the front office. I want control of the players yeah. coming in. He's sort of like, give me the roster, and I'll do with it what mm-hmm. I can. There we go. There we go. All right, mm-hmm. so three questions down. Mm-hmm. Many more to go. Many more to but go. first, today's show is sponsored by Policy genius Mm -hmm. it is still september and it's worth remembering that september is national life insurance awareness month is it you didn't know that i didn't know that there's banners everywhere how did you not know we have them (laughs) we have several of them unfurled in the office i don't know (laughs) how you didn't notice uh most people aren't aware of that uh in fact most people aren't even aware that they need life insurance at all that's why 40 percent of americans do not have life insurance and here's a sad fact for you daryl 100 percent of americans gonna die at some point oh (laughs) I mean, it's the reality. Yeah, I guess. It's, unless you're whoever it was. Re- oh, Eric Cantona, who said he, he should, like, all cells are replaceable and you should be able to live to be a 200, I think it was. <laughs> Eric Cantona's the best. Yeah, we don't quite live in the Cantona future yet. <laughs> no, the Ricky Bobby we, future. We live in the uh, the flaming lips present, which is everyone you know someday will die. Oh, we have made this show bleak, We have made, which is certainly what Policy Genius wanted. Um, and we should note then we've made it bleak, but Policy Genius does not because getting life insurance does not need to be difficult or expensive or terrifying, which is a key thing. I think when you're thinking about... About life insurance, you're literally thinking about your own mortality or yep. those around you, like mortality. Yeah, yeah, and That's how you can profit to... from it. How you can profit <laughs> from your own mortality. Well, I was gonna say it just it like doing any sort of insurance shopping can be like overwhelming and yeah, sort yeah. of nerve wracking, and it's one of those things that like. You, it's really difficult to do until you're doing it. Because you're and, staring the Grim Reaper in the face. And you're just like, oh, I don't know if I'll, I'll, I'll do it later. I'll do, I'll do it tomorrow. I'll definitely do it tomorrow. And that's where Policy Genius is really useful because they really do make it easier than ever to get covered and yep. to get uh, insurance for yourself. So in just minutes, you mm-hmm. can compare quotes um, from the top insurers and find the best price. Essentially, Policy Genius aggregates all the best possible offers you can get. You can look at them all on one internet page um, and you can make your decision from there. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also make uh, make it easy to find the right home insurance, auto insurance, disability insurance. They have lots of different options there. So if you like, if you're completely without insurance. First of all, you shouldn't be, especially yep. if you're driving. But second of all, mm-hmm. just go to Policy Genius, and in minutes, they'll get you covered on like everything. You have all the insurance. You have so, advanced insurance. So hopefully we've convinced you mm-hmm. that you do need insurance. Mm-hmm. Um, so then you go to policygenius.com, policygenius.com, and you can shop for all kinds of insurance right there. That's right, Policy Genius, the easy way to compare and buy life insurance. And if you don't want to be like me, my life insurance policy is I wrap myself in bubble wrap whenever I go outside. <laughs> it's very, very time-consuming. It so makes it difficult to get boy. around. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So if you don't want to have to do that, then go to Policy Genius, see what they have on offer, and we very much appreciate Policy Genius having those offers but also for sponsoring today's episode and the link to policygenius.com mm-hmm. will be in the show notes although honestly are. you should be able to work out this point. I believe it's policygenius.com <laughs> next question yes sir alright uh, Dana Miner asks oh you're asking me okay. I think so I think you asked the last one right because then I, I went on the statistics rant I actually asked the last two. Oh, my, my mistake then I will ask this one uh, Dana Miner after Frank Lampard's statement that Pulisic is terrible and not ready and will never play for Chelsea ever in the Premier League should we begin to worry 
Actually, do you mind reading in the exact wording that Dana asked the question? Because I actually think it's important. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And and I'm I'm not mocking Dana. I am mocking mm-hmm. a lot of the like panic about this quote. Yes. Uh, after Frank Lampard's statement that Pulisic isn't ready for the Premier League, should we begin to worry? So there were headlines and mm-hmm. like almost quotes about Lampard saying Pulisic isn't ready for mm-hmm. the Premier League. Lampard did not say this. It's almost like headlines could be misleading. Yes. So there's just been a lot of reporting about Lampard explaining Pulisic's absence from the Chelsea first team recently. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of the stories we've just had in the first couple of lines, Lampard says Pulisic isn't ready for the Premier League. Right. It's not what he said it's at all. not what he said. Do you, have the, do you know what he said? I did. I copied and pasted the exact quote. You mind I had if a I read feeling it you? you would. It's, I do not. It's longish, but I think it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. Here's what Lampard said when asked about Pulisic, you know, not coming off the bench, not playing mm-hmm. since the international break until today, right? He played in the EFL Cup today mm-hmm. with some reserves. So, you know. With mostly reserves. Yeah. yeah. Um, Lampard says, um, I've got to pick a squad. Uh, bef- before that, he had played a few games. Willian has come back in and been sharp and looked good. I decided to go with Mason Mount today. This is after the, uh, the last weekend um, because we needed to stay, stay strong in midfield and play Mason high up the pitch. This is my choice to make. He, Pulisic, will get ample opportunities. He is a young player as well as everyone is talking about Mason and Tammy and Fakayo. That's Tomoy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he's actually as young, if not younger, than some of them. His chances will come. Mm-hmm. Lampard goes on to say, I have to make choices. Um, there's him sitting on the bench. Pedro sitting on the bench, Ross Barkley on the bench, Batshuayi, who deserves more minutes for the way he's training at the minute. Those are the unfortunate choices I need to make. Right. Nowhere in there. No, then you forgot the part where he said, and he's not very good and not ready. Nowhere in there does he say he's not ready for the Premier League, right? He's essentially just saying there are just other players ahead of him. It's really competitive for places. That's why he hasn't been playing. I think what maybe gets confusing, or at least confused me momentarily with that one, was that he like starts listing him with the young players but reading that again, like obviously what he's saying is... He just turned 21. Exactly. He's saying we have all these young players who we're also excited to get minutes. And Pulisic, this kid who cost $70 million, is even younger than a lot of those yeah. dudes. So like, if they're not getting minutes and we're trying to bring them through, we're talking about an even younger player who's new to the league when there's other experienced players around him and players that Lampard has more familiarity with. Like, yeah, like Mason Manta, he played yeah, the whole season with. Of course. Yeah. Then like, yeah, it makes sense that he's going to take his time and make sure that he's developing the right way. It could also be that he's... He hasn't like performed the level that maybe Lampard thought he would coming in, yeah. but that's not what he said. And so I guess like that might be the reality. And if you like want to read between the lines, you can. But again, to your point, Lampard did not come out and say he's not ready and can't handle this or anything like that. And he didn't even throw in those little kind of indicators that we've seen in the past of oh, you know, he's kind of struggling to adapt to the physicality of the league yeah. or the pace of the league or no, what, what have you. No, it was just a he's young and there's lots of other people who are very good. Yep. And then he didn't. I'm, well, not, I'm not sure if Lampard said this, but there's a couple of games. Where where Chelsea had to make, um, they were forced into some substitutions, right? right? When they're injuries to defenders, yeah, where like, this weekend, um, yeah. Alonso had to come on mm-hmm. uh, for Emerson. And then Christensen came Christensen out of halftime. Had to come yep. on. So he's already burned two subs. And mm-hmm. you've only got one sub left. And again, you've got guys like Willian or Pedro or Batshuayi or other people on the bench. So mm-hmm. it's understandable that Pulisic will get overlooked. So I, we- I, for one, am not panicking just yet. It's only September. It's a long, 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 long Premier League season. I'm not panicking either, but I am going to rewrite that quote as uh, Lampard refuses to play Pulisic as center back. That's how I'm taking <laughs> that away now. And I think that's unacceptable, frankly. Lampard says Pulisic is not ready to play center back in the Premier League. There we go. Yeah. <laughs>
Lampard implies? Yeah. <laughs> and he's not wrong. He is not. He is not. Uh, w- one more question. Uh, well, I have several more questions. But yeah. the next question comes from Victor Savage, who asks Daryl Grove, how does the U.S. men's national team and the U.S. women's national team give out squad numbers? A normal squad must be numbered from 1 to 23. And we've seen veterans like Michael Bradley and Omar Gonzalez always given the number 4 or 3, respectively. But how does the rest of the squad get given their numbers? I mean, I think Victor's onto the answer, mm-hmm. which is if you're a um, senior player, as mm-hmm. in you've been around a lot. A veteran. A veteran. You eventually kind of just get hold of a number, yep. right? Like Bradley, when he's in the team, he wants the number four. Mm-hmm. He's been around a long time. He always gets the number four, right? Yep. Christian Pulisic seems to always now get the number 10. Right. Um, Omar Gonzalez, even though he's not like first choice, uh, he's not many people's first choice mm-hmm. US men's national team player. I think just in seniority in terms of caps and age, um, he gets the number three because that's yep. what he's had before, right? And then when you come into the squad then you kind of, if you're a newbie, you kind of get whatever number's left over, right? Yes. I don't think Pulisic joined the first U.S. squad and got the number 10. No. Right? It, probably, it probably took him, I remember him wearing like 17, I, I, See, I think Josie is always 17, isn't he? Oh, yeah, he? you're right. Yeah. I, I think he may have been 11, but with the modern numbering system, it looks like a 17 because, yeah, yeah, yeah. of course, it does. Yeah, but so you essentially get whatever number's available, yeah. and then after you've been around a while, you may be... Like, someone will eventually claim Bradley's number four shirt when Bradley yeah. stops being a U.S. men's national team exactly. player. And you eventually just manage to claim a number for yourself. And I'm sure there's some negotiation going on. Like, uh, maybe if, like, uh, Dwayne Holmes and... I'm trying to think of another player who maybe hadn't been around before. Mm-hmm. Say Dwayne Holmes and Richie Ledesma are in the next two squads. They don't have established squad numbers. They might be asked, hey, do either of you guys care if you get, like, 19 or 20? Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and and they may not. It's 20 or 21. And then they get that and then they stick with it, or they may not love that number, but that's what's left. But then eventually they establish seniority. They can kind of jump around and jump down into the number that they want. So yeah. if you're a striker and number nine is taken and you're given number 19, but then the next like next yeah. time around that player is number nine. 19? Have I seen Sergeant in 19 for the U.S.? That could be. There's yeah. that weird Louis Van Hall thing of like you always want a, a, an attacker to have a nine in there somewhere. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. like 9, 19, 29, 99. <laughs> or if you're, I think it was Zamorano who was eight. 18, so you yeah, can add yeah. it together and make nine. Yeah, even some runners, yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, but yeah. yeah, yeah, I think that's that's generally how it works. And then you can either stick with what, what you got when you came in if you're like superstitious and yeah. it worked well for you. And if it didn't, you can change it around. I do think the national team, though, probably doesn't want too much changing. Like I doubt they would love it if Bradley came in and said, hey, I want to swap this out just for marketing purposes. I do think that factors into it a little bit. Because they've got to print up different jerseys. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, which it is always a risk whenever the national team jerseys are like – printed custom with a number on them because it's yeah. like that player could be dropped at any given moment uh-huh. and then suddenly that jersey is slightly out of date i have a josie 17 do you an altador 17 us right. national team jersey it's from like 2014 i think but um but that's been pretty consistent i'd love to know why that's josie's number uh, maybe it's maybe it's what was available when he first came in and he's gone with it i'm sure there's yeah. other reasons as well they, they always have different reasons and then maybe just when he came through at red bull that that, that was yeah. the first jersey number and he's like all right scored a bunch of goals on this let's yeah. keep this i always love it when they like when the players stick with the, their original jersey so it's like number 37 coming in <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i mean I, but and then I, I do also like like certain players having sort of numbers that we can identify them with yeah because it just it, it means that there's familiarity there I guess you usually want that when things are better because uh, then you want the sign of like, oh, yep, Harry Kane's always going to be our number nine. He's always in there. We know that reliably. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess there aren't as many players on the U.S. men's national team who we're like, yep, old calming down presence there. I, I don't really know who that would be right now. 
Uh, okay, so we, we talked about Pulisic wearing the, mm-hmm. the number 10. Uh, maybe one more question before the before the next ad. Sure. Oh, uh, and then I think starting goalkeeper, worth noting, always number one. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Wayne Warner asks, mm-hmm. should the U.S. men's national team play Christian Pulisic as a false nine, being that, Pulis, be, uh, being that our other strikers, Zardes, Altidore, Sargent, are not top level? So my, like... The best way I can answer this is they could try that. I mean, if you wanted to go that route. Yeah. But my answer is that's not a thing that we've seen Greg Berhalter want to do. Yeah. He tends to, it seems like, want to have two-ish uh, attacking options centrally at all times. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if Pulisic drops in a little bit defensively, it seems like more often than not we see those two up there. So to have a false nine would mean getting rid of one of those players and kind of changing the system. Or at least clogging up the space. Yeah, right? exactly. I so mean, I, Should we explain what a false nine is just in case no one is familiar with probably. a false nine? Probably. Mm-hmm. Are you asking me to do it? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So it's essentially someone who looks like they're going to play centre forward, essentially, but at least half the time, instead of just standing next to the centre backs and being like opera, mm-hmm. um, occupying a traditional striker centre forward type spot, that false nine will come deep and almost play in an attacking midfield type role. And the idea is you're supposed to essentially. Um, confuse the center backs because mm-hmm. they're like do i go with him into midfield or do i stay in my defensive position right. and you overload the midfield by having this extra person floating around in there and then if the center back does step out to follow that player because the midfield is overloaded then theoretically now you have one fewer center backs you have more space for other players to then take up and occupy yeah. or run into and make runs into and like really cause a lot of defensive confusion for the opposition team so in theory yeah mm-hmm. i so the reason i don't like this is one i don't think uh Altidore or Sargent are, you know, necessarily the weak links mm-hmm. in the U.S. national team. Like they're guys that I would like to have in the team, um, but also this, I don't think this would get the best out of Pulisic because as a false nine, you'll still end up being centre forward, sort of, yep. and you can end up with Christian Pulisic receiving the ball with his back to goal, mm-hmm. which is the opposite of what Christian Pulisic needs. Right? Essentially, Pulisic is great when he's got. Uh, the ball at his feet, everybody in front of him and some space to run into. Like He's going to be in a lot of tight, confined spaces as a false nine. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that gets the best out of him at all. No, I really think if we're seeing Pulisic put in a position that I think gives him the best chance to thrive, it is probably wide, in my opinion. I've yeah. kind of come around to that idea that initially I wanted him as a number 10. I, I agreed with the... I mentioned this on the Weekend Review, but there's a great Reddit post in response to the, the Lampard quote we already talked about, where it sort of goes through and like asks the question and gives like a yes-no answer for everything Pulisic of like, has he done well? Or like, has oh, he done well enough? Yeah. No. Will he do better? Yes. Could he have done like that? And like that sort of rational approach helps me understand a little bit more about like what I think Pulisic is is best at. And I think he's best at sort of being in kind of one v one situations where he's maybe not being looked at by the defense as like this is definitely the main threat. We got to track him and mark him and stay with him in the middle. But when he's out wide and gets the ball in space or gets the ball when a defender has to kind of like come careening out to close down that space or close down that angle, that's where I think he thrives and is able to both do individual things but then also combine more readily with his teammates. Yeah, and combining with someone mm-hmm. who is an actual centre-forward, right? Yeah. I like the idea of Pulisic one 2 with Altidore or oh, Sargent yeah. rather than Pulisic being in that position himself. Yes. No arguments here, my friend. Another thing we have no arguments with is today's <laughs> sponsor, Manscaped. Mm-hmm. Manscaped, keeping you safe down there. 
They are. Uh, Manscaped is the number one men's below-the-belt grooming company. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. My question for you, Mr. Grove, you've just been in the hospital. Uh, I feel like you, you know. Do I, do I need to trim? I'm just saying, well, no, more <laughs> so, like, were you trimmed and did they use Manscaped tools? Because, you know, like, sometimes they've got to, like, access parts that require the hair being removed. My stomach was trimmed there we go. for the surgery. Did they, they use did, Manscaped They equipment? didn't go below the belt. You didn't insist that they go out and get the Lawnmower 2.0 with proprietary skin-safe technology to those. <laughs> No nicks or snags. I should have read them the ad while we <laughs> You really should have. They were saying, but we're not doing surgery down there. Why? <laughs> I'd still like to be shaved. Yeah. It's fine. <laughs> I'd just like to keep it trimmed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that didn't happen for you, no? It did not happen. Well, did you at least use the crop preserver, which is an anti-chafing deodorant and moisturizer? I will do going forward. Okay. I'm just going to keep grilling you about forward. your time yeah. to make you even more uncomfortable. <laughs> Um, so the thing mm-hmm. is, you are safe mm-hmm. when you use the Lawnmower 2.0. Mm-hmm. There are no nicks. There are no cuts. You will not be uh, putting yourself in any danger when you uh, when you shape up down there with the Lawnmower 2.0. What are you hinting at? I'm so terrified. I'm saying that <laughs> okay. there, are, there are other shavers that you could use down there. I see. Okay. That maybe aren't as precision engineered. Mm-hmm. They haven't put as much thought into it. They're not specialist tools to do this very... Um, sensitive job mm-hmm. that Manscaped do. But when you get the Lomo 2.0, it is designed just for that, and that's why they make sure there can be no nicks and scrapes. This is true. Yeah. I do appreciate that they offer this type of like like modern proprietary technology, as I said, as opposed to like I think one of their competitors, it's just like, you know, the Grim Reaper like scythe, that's their grooming. You don't want that. That that's very risky. That company very dangerous. Business, they did. Lots of lawsuits. Yeah. Lots of lawsuits over there. <laughs> <laughs> it's the uh, the Fen Fen lawsuit of the uh, men's below the boat grooming companies right there but you won't get that with manscaped as we said what you will get is 20 percent off and free shipping when you use the code tss at checkout at manscaped.com so always use the right tools Mm -hmm. for the job um your your stuff down there will thank you your stuff down there will thank you and as taylor said 20 percent off (laughs) and free shipping when you use the code tss Mm -hmm. at manscaped.com 20 percent off free shipping tss at manscaped.com 10 percent off 20% 20% off. There we are. are you, uh, did I just that? <laughs> no. I don't believe I did. Thank you very much to Manscaped for sponsoring today's episode. One more question, Ooh. then some scouting. Yeah. This one comes from Robert Cordova, who asks, or says, I do that every time. Petr Cech retired after 15 years in the Premier League and did not get much attention. True, right? There was no Petr Cech celebration. Not really. Maybe should have been. Maybe we'll still get a testimonial. We yeah. shall see. How does the Total Soccer Show view Cech's entire club slash international career? So, I hadn't really thought about this until I Nor saw I. this question. And what I realized is um, Petr Cech kind of faded away yep. in many ways. And maybe that's why it didn't get so much attention. That's why we weren't thinking about it. Because mm-hmm. he ended up, obviously his glory years were at Chelsea. Mm-hmm. Then he went to Arsenal. But then he ended up being, what, second choice behind Leno for yeah. the final season. Yeah, Czech's distribution, not ideal. So, yeah, so it kind of just, it's kind of like he faded away, right? And then but I think he ends up going back to Chelsea this summer to yeah, sign with Chelsea director, to then retire right? yeah, with yeah. Chelsea. Oh, did he? I think, I think that Chelsea? happened, I believe. That's yeah. interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but looking back on Czech's career, if you go back to the glory days, Mm-hmm. I made a mistake. I th- I kept thinking of Petr Cech as like he was just unstoppable before the head injury. Mm-hmm. Remember the Stephen Hunt yeah. head injury? Then he had to wear the protective goggles. More on literally that later. His skull mm-hmm. like, was caved in, right? Um, but some of his best moments came after he came yeah. back wearing the protective the protective headgear. Yeah. So my quick, including winning the Champions League and saving those penalties in the extra time against Ayn Rabin and mm-hmm. in the final. Um, but the one thing I do want to just mention about Petr Cech is when I think of 
the peak Petacek at Chelsea, I think of a goalkeeper who was large, sort of imposing, won everything in the air, was claiming all kinds of crosses. I kept, I keep thinking every time crosses come in, Petacek claims them, but also was super agile and had really good reflexes. Yep. For someone of his size. And when you think about it, he was probably the best goalkeeper in the Premier League for a good while. And maybe had a claim at best goalkeeper in the world for a good few years there in the mid to late 2000s. I think I agree. The confusing aspect of that is like, I can't tell how much of that was him and how much of that was just how good that Chelsea was. That Chelsea team was in the first go round of Jose Mourinho. John Terry, Ricardo Carvalho, that team was terrifying. And I remember rooting for Manchester United against them and sort of hoping that maybe they would find a way to get a result. But I remember even that one season when United did beat them in the second leg and it was like, they closed the gap to seven points. It was like still that much of a juggernaut. And I think of Petr Cech, like when I think of him, I don't think of him as like, oh, this amazing save or that amazing save. I'm sure there are Chelsea fans who do. I think of him, number one, as being representative of that Chelsea team that were just unbeatable, indestructible. I remember the season they did finally give it up and it was sort of like this monumental moment of like somebody found a way through. I can't believe it. So I think of him as a part of that squad. I think it's that I don't remember him doing like Manuel Neuer things and being crazy off his line. And I don't think he of him as... He was flash, right? It was like good decisions mm-hmm. all the time. Exactly. And maybe decisions before trouble even happened, like his positioning would be really accurate. But then he'd, and he'd still have the agility to get down and make saves. People would go one-on-one with him and he'd kind of block it. But those aren't like the big like full stretch mm-hmm. top corner fingertips tipping it around the post saves that like that make highlight reels I bet in, in some ways his highlight reel will be quite boring yeah. if people go through one on one with him and he comes out blocks it or it would be him catching a cross or claiming a cross uh, that someone's put in mm-hmm. you know what I mean yeah. it would be steady effective but not particularly flash no and so the, the other two things I would say then like I do think his legacy is that helmet partially yeah. and I mean that not in a like oh he wore it and it was weird but more so in a normalizing where headgear in soccer mm-hmm. games like he is the person I will most readily think of as like yeah he wore the helmet it like that it cushioned his brain <laughs> like, yeah. like and like I think yeah, of it protected his brain from further yeah. damage essentially right? and, and it is a sort of like like I, we've talked about this a little bit before but I've had friends my brothers had concussions uh, and I know uh, checks was significantly worse than a concussion, yeah, yeah but like like the idea of like there's no like serious injury when you get a concussion. I mean, there's a huge serious injury, but there's no like visible injury yeah. that like it, there is this sort of idea of like, well, you're fine. You look fine. Go play. Everything's OK. Yeah. And I again, I know checks was worse than that. But I guess I say that to say that like by sort of normalizing dealing with head injuries and taking proper precautions to make sure that you're protected. I feel like that is a thing that I look at Petr Cech as being like, like I had a, a teammate like last weekend who was wearing a protective helmet and was like, I know I look kind of dorky. And I was like, no. You look like your brain is protected. Petr Cech wore one of those. He's one of the best goalkeepers in the world. Like yeah. it, it gives you that sort of person to reference, and that is a huge thing it with is. things like head injuries. Yeah, absolutely. All right. In terms of um, achievements, mm-hmm. I want to go back to that Champions League final. Sure. I read a story uh, just doing a bit of research for this about the research that Petr Cech did mm-hmm. for that Champions League final against Bayern Munich. Okay. When Chelsea won, mm-hmm. so you know they won on penalties, mm-hmm. right? He watched five years worth of Bayern Munich players taking penalty kicks that's why he went the right way every time mm-hmm. and saved two of those uh, two of those kicks in the shootout 
worth remembering in the penalty kick shootout that Chelsea lose to Manchester United. He did basically the same thing. I think Chelsea had hired a consultant as well, but Czech obviously did his research. And the one that stands out is he, I think either he figured out or was told but properly executed that Ronaldo would always do the stutter step run up. And he Mm -hmm. did that to see what the goalkeeper did. And basically their research showed 95% of the time, I think it was, if he did that run up and you did not move, he would shoot it exactly where he shot it. And that is the save that Petr Cech makes in that penalty shootout is on Ronaldo, who you would have put all the money on scoring that penalty yeah. to be the hero. And I think he also guessed every single like penalty the right way every single time in that shootout, just ended up not being able to get as many saves. Yeah. But yeah, he was a meticulous goalkeeper who clearly did his work and took his profession very seriously. So what about his international career? Mm-hmm. I My memory, and actually I looked this up to double check. Who did he represent, by the way? The Czech Republic. <laughs> 2006 World Cup. Because his name is Czech. Yeah, did you get it? It's clever. It's spelled different, but it's, it's pronounced the same. 2006 World Cup is the only time Petr right. Cech went to the World Cup. They beat the US in the first game. Yes, they did. Remember Rizitsky scored? I would say more so massacred, but massacred sure, whatever. The US, yeah. Lost the next two games, mm-hmm. so didn't get to the right. knockout round. So there's not really, it might just in terms of what I saw, because obviously I don't watch Czech Republic playing in qualifiers. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there wasn't like a, a glorious international career there. No, right? and, and I think that like that was where I hesitated when you said like maybe the best goalkeeper in the world is because it's tough to know for sure because so many of the best goalkeepers in the world happen to play for some of the best national teams in yeah. the world. And so De Gea has a Spanish backline in front of him. Neuer has a German backline in front of him, and it makes them look that much better. If you're playing for a Czech Republic team that does not have that quality of defender, you're going to yeah. face a lot more, so you're not going to perform as well as a national team. And that can sort of ding your status a little bit, but I wouldn't say that's his fault at all, more so the fact that he was facing many more shots than De Gea, Neuer, or whomever else. Here's my only memory of the 2006 World Cup mm-hmm. is, uh, do you remember Dave O'Brien, the baseball your commentator? only memory? With, no, with, about Patrick. Okay, I got you. Dave O'Brien, the baseball commentator, was uh, pulled in to commentate uh-huh. on games. It didn't go so well. Um, and he referred to Casey Keller as maybe the best goalkeeper in the world. <laughs> um, and the correct response from many people was, He's probably the third best goalkeeper in the group. Yes. Because <laughs> Gigi Buffon and Petr Cech were yeah. the other two goalkeepers yeah. in the U.S.'s group that year. Mm-hmm. So like, so I, <laughs> I think Cech is he's probably the second best in that group in that situation. Yeah. Um, but well, Buffon I, won the World Cup that year as well, right? He did. I also think like, like there's the Jack Black quote about uh, in High Fidelity about is it, be- is it better to burn out than to fade away? Yeah. And and I guess I kind of feel like Czech did both Isn't simultaneously. That from, a song? That's from a song, right? That's not just a Jack Black quote. Uh, it's it's about uh, Stevie Wonder. I think it is. Is it fair to judge a formerly great artist by his latter day sins? Okay. Is it better to burn out than to fade away? Uh-huh. And Czech sort of like he goes to Arsenal. We assume, oh, that's going to kind of prolong his career. He's going to be at Arsenal, who need the reliable goalkeeper. They haven't had one that is like up to that standard. Yeah. But then once there's the emphasis on playing out of the back, he stops getting those minutes. It's you, as you said, and so it becomes this sort of like he doesn't have a bunch of high profile. Mistakes mistakes and thus is dropped and that's what we remember the high pro- mm-hmm. profile mistakes but he also is very poor with his feet and gives the ball away and is obviously not working and thus like kind of fades away so it's this weird like he stops being around suddenly but yeah. also does fade a little bit as a result mm-hmm. and it's a strange way for him to end so i'm glad this question comes about because it yeah. helps you remember that Petr Cech, very very good it's also worth remembering the move to arsenal um would not traditionally have been allowed no right but apparently it was a mark of Petr Wait, what, Cech, do you, what do you mean 
of just letting like a high profile goalkeeper go from one team to another top yeah, four team. Just to clarify, it wasn't like there's yeah. a rule that no players can move within the city yeah, of London. But essentially, yeah. Chelsea would not have sold right. a good goalkeeper to Arsenal mm-hmm. to let them strengthen yeah. at that time. Apparently, it was, like, it was within the club that there was such respect for the man, mm-hmm. and this was the offer that they had that they let him do it, like just purely out of respect for Petacek. Yes. Right? So that apparently he's he's a good dude. I feel like there's like a one percent chance in there that they were aware of how often having that like marquee name who's been there forever but is no longer playing that can end up being a little bit of a distraction. See yeah. Rooney, comma Wayne. So like maybe there's also that idea like Arsenal, you can have him. Sure, he's really good, but also now we don't no, have to think about it anymore. More as a respectful uh, let's hope right, so. Yeah. Let's hope they so. They didn't shunt him off to Serie A somewhere. This is true. Right, this is yeah. true. So and he, you know you get to. He gets to keep his address, probably. He didn't have to move house when he moved to Arsenal. You know <laughs> how, do you, how do you think Arsenal fans feel about Petr Cech? I don't know. I think that might be my answer. It's probably like, I'm not sure they do. Yeah. Like, I think it's probably just another goalkeeper who like they were okay with, but he wasn't that next-level yeah. goalkeeper that they've been looking and for. I think some of the reflexes and agility yeah. have gone towards the end as well, as well as the playing style changing. Yeah. So he's not so good with his feet. I but just it, remember it that It used one. to be that yeah. he was complete package, right? Like, mm-hmm. big... Took everything out of the air, imposing, but also agile. And I think when you lose a bit of the reflexes, then you're, you're not quite the complete package like you were before. Is it the case, like, I'm sure there are historians out there who will disagree, but like, is it the case that the idea of playing out of the back and having your goalkeeper be very good with their feet is a more modern idea? Like, is he a vestige of a bygone era where it was more a, like, take the goal kick long, punt the ball long, make the saves, be a goalkeeper, collect the yeah, ball I mean, out of the air? You think he's really came up in the early 2000s, yeah. right? It's, mm-hmm. That's like a long time ago now. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, we 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 salute Petr Cech. Yeah. His uh his his cushioned head, we salute. <laughs> All right. So, thank you to mm-hmm. everybody for the questions. If you have questions for us, we're hungry for questions. Send them to us. Uh the URL is totalsoccershow.com/questions. The shorter the question, the better, because then it gives us room to answer. I thought you liked like long thesis statements, like a couple a couple paragraphs, and then a question at the end that was agree question. I like clicking delete on them. Okay, there we go. Uh, well, what we did never click delete on until we've read them out are our scouting <laughs> reports. We have many, many, many scouting reports. We've obviously not been able to get to as many as we would have liked recently, yes. but we will try to. Uh, it's my bowel's kind of, fault. My yeah, bowel's fault. I, yeah, yeah. If you want to blame anyone, blame all cancer ever in history. <laughs> um, but we are going to try to knock out as many as we can, uh, starting with Nick Imhoff, who's scouting Emmanuel Sabi. We should note some of these are from a little while ago, not too long ago, but okay. you know, not like yesterday. 21-year-old American forward for Holbro is Emmanuel Sabi. He was linked with both Galatasaray and bigger clubs in Denmark during the transfer window, but the buyer, quote-unquote, uh, reportedly pulled out at the last minute. So with Holbro, he remains. I say buyer because... Yeah, I read the story. Mm-hmm. The buyer was never identified. Exactly, right? which is strange to say. Like He's was. linked with a bunch of teams, but the buyer is like, well, you should know them. You Usually it's name, yeah. right? Like, mm-hmm. oh, like uh, Galatasaray pulled out at the yeah. last minute. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, Jeff and Sam Huffman are scouting Mikwele Akele, the mm. 22-year-old American midfielder for Villarreal B. Jeff and Sam say Mikwele scored the game winner in a 2-1 uh, comeback win over Hercules. He ran into space, received a pass, cut back from the end line, shimmied a defender and roofed a left-footed shot past the keeper. Go on, Mikwele. Get him on that plane. To the VRL A-team. There we go. <laughs> uh, Anurag Anjaria scouting Andrea Novakovic, the 22-year-old American striker for Frosinone. Uh, Novakovic's time with Reading came to an end after he signed a four-year deal with Frosinone in Serie B, uh, Serie B uh, for an undisclosed but probably very small fee, says Anurag. <laughs> uh, he has made three appearances for his new club so far this season. Zero goals in Serie B thus far. He's kind of fell out of the conversation of uh, U.S. men's national team 
Start, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Um, Russell Varner is scouting Alex Mendez, the 18-year-old American midfielder for Ajax. I know him. Russell says after tallying his first young Ajax assist and getting called up to the US under-23 squad, Mendes was named to Ajax's Champions League roster. He is listed as number 38 on the roster, but did not play in their 3-0 win over Lille, who themselves were without the injured Timothy Ware. Boo, but also well done, Alex Mendes. Yeah. Uh, Calvin Derleth scouting Kennedy, the 23-year-old Brazilian wingback on loan at Hatafe from Chelsea. Since moving to Hatafe on a season-long loan, Kennedy has played in one game for a grand total of one minute. Uh, not great for a player whose last two loans ended with him being relegated to the bench for both Watford and Newcastle. Julie Nishimura-Jensen is scouting Alan Halilovic, the 23-year-old Croatian midfielder on loan at Heronvane from Milan. Mm-hmm. Julie says since moving to Heronvane on deadline day, Halilovic has managed just two appearances for a grand total of 25 minutes of playing time. How many clubs do you think Halilovic has played for at this point? A billion? It's, it's up there, right? It's got, if, we were, if we were still doing the Wikipedia game, he'd be a good one from yeah. like Scouting Network Wikipedia. Yep. Maybe I'll have to remember that one for a later date. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tadito is scouting Takafusa Kubo, 18-year-old Japanese attacker on loan at Mallorca from Real Madrid. Mallorca, co-owned by Carmartino and, yeah. <laughs> Carmartino and, yeah. Stu Holden, you I got think it. he's also involved, yeah. Steve Nash may be in there yes. too, I would guess. Kubo made his La Liga debut, coming on as a sub in the 79th minute in Mallorca's 2-0 loss at Valencia. He followed that up by coming on at halftime for Japan in their friendly against, not Japan, I forget it, I think it was Paraguay. Okay. Uh, young Take lived up to his Japanese messy nickname with a display of ridiculous dribbling, sharp passing, and some bending shots on goal. Fortunately, none of them went in, but still a good performance. <laughs> Go on, young Take. Mm-hmm. Takafusa Kubo. Danny Makaga is scouting Oliver Batista Meyer. And a Takafusa Kubo to you, sir. The 18-year-old German-Brazilian left winger for Bayern Munich. Danny says Oliver Batista Meyer was called up to Germany's U19 squad, which makes it less likely he ends up playing for Brazil. He's been getting consistent minutes for Bayern's U19 and reserve teams and was added to the senior team's Champions League squad. Lots of players being added to Champions League squads. I yep. don't think we're done with uh, that update uh, in terms of players being added. Dan Landau scouting Giovanni Reina, the 16-year-old American attacker for Borussia Dortmund. Reina earned a spot on Dortmund's Champions League roster. <laughs> he has made four appearances for Dortmund's U19s, scoring once and backing four assists. That's decent. He also captained the USMNT U17s to a 2-1 win over Mexico's U17s in the Four Nations Cup. Uh, Reina scored the U.S.'s first with a finesse shot past the Mexican keeper. And then in the 88th minute, he contributed the MLS assist for Ricardo. Ricardo Pepe's late winner. That's a talented U17s. It's not bad. It's not bad. Guy Edwab is scouting Serge Gnabry, the 23-year-old German wide forward for Bayern Munich. Guy says, while on international duty with Germany, Gnabry was deployed as a second striker in a 3-5-2 and was tasked with dropping between the lines. It took less than 10 minutes for Gnabry to repay Yogi Love's faith, bombing late into the box and smashing in a loose ball for his eighth goal in nine national team appearances. Decent. That's a decent rate of return. Uh, can we get him to play for the U.S.? Maybe? Possibly? We, we is it, can we? No? We can't Sergino Dest everybody. Fine. Kaz Tidrick scouting Robbie Mertz, the 22-year-old American midfielder for the Pittsburgh Riverhounds. Robbie has been getting lots of minutes lately. At he least got, someone is. <laughs> that's good. Uh, he got 60 minutes against uh, Louisville in early September and then played almost the entire match in a 1-0 win over the Charleston Battery, who shoved and fouled him early in the match. Kaz was suggesting that maybe that means they were sort of prepared for his trickery and dribbling ability and wanted All to kind right. of knock him off his game. Like, get Robbie. 
Yeah, exactly. That was their strategy. It was written on the whiteboard for sure. Uh, this past weekend, he started and helped Nashville uh, – or helped keep Nashville on their heels, excuse me, but was the sacrificial substitute after Pittsburgh went down to 10 men in the 48th minute. So basically he helped kind of do a defensive job for the remaining five and then was subbed out at halftime for an actual defender. Oh, Robbie Burns. Yeah. Steven Spaker is scouting uh, Shandon Hopeo, the 20-year-old American midfielder, on loan at the Tacoma Defiance. Mm-hmm. Um, Steven says, Shandon has MLS minutes. He played 30 minutes in a loss to the Colorado Rapids after being called up to the Seattle Sounders' first team via the extreme hardship mechanism. I think they had like 17 players missing. Oh, yeah, because they were all on international duty. At one point, right? I think they had 13 active players or something like Ooh. that. He showed flashes of real promise with his technical ability and willingness to run at defenders. Again, that's Shandon Hopeu. Mm-hmm. Final scouting report of the day. Ooh, it's, comes, a, it's an interesting one. It is. Comes from James Jones scouting Andrew Carlton, the 19-year-old American attacker for Atlanta United. First of all, can we just pause and say, I can't believe he's 19. I can't either. Because it feels like he's been around for 40 years? Yeah. We've, yeah. Known, well, we've known about Carlson since he was 16. And right? he's been making headlines more consistently. Uh, I should say he's an attacker for Atlanta United, but primarily Atlanta United 2. Uh, Andrew notched the first professional brace of his career in a 3-2 win for Atlanta United 2 over the Ottawa Fury. In the first minute, he chased down a long ball from Kevin Kratz, darted into the box, and chipped the keeper from a tight angle to give the twos the lead. After Ottawa roared back to, the, to tie the game at 2, Andrew found the winner in the 72nd minute across... Possibly a shot from Amir Bashti <laughs> was badly spilled by the Ottawa keeper, and Carlton pounced on it to give Atlanta United to the victory. He followed that up this weekend with a well-taken game winner against the Charleston Battery. Atlanta added another later in the game for a 3-1 to victory over Charleston. All right. Well done, Andrew Carlton. Getting mm-hmm. back on track. Remember when there was trouble with him forgetting his passport and all that business? I mean... Yes. I, let, let's have a sustained run of not having those moments. Am I getting too optimistic we, too early? I mean, maybe there's some wishful thinking in okay. there, yeah. Okay, all right. Well, thank you to everybody for the scouting report. Mm-hmm. If you'd like to join the Scouting Network... He's going to get a red card this weekend. I oh, hope you're happy. It's totalsoccershow.com slash join. If you haven't received your player, you've signed up for the Scouting Network, you haven't received your player, please email me. Um, I haven't been able to get to it recently, obviously, because hospital. Uh, but email Daryl, D-A-O-A-L, at totalsoccershow.com, and I will assign you a player. If you've emailed me recently... I did see it, and I will be getting back to you as soon as possible. There we are. So uh, that about brings us uh, to the end of today's show. Tomorrow, as we said at the very beginning of this show, uh, we're going to be discussing some Americans abroad. Yes. What their seasons have been so far. We'll do a deep deep check-in on Pulisic, McKenney, Josh Sargent, Mm -hmm. Tyler Adams, how it's all going for the uh, young Americans abroad. That is correct. Not just young, right? Matt Miazga as well. I mean, relatively young. Yeah. Young at heart. Younger than us. Uh, and then Friday, we're going to have uh, an old favorite uh, return to the show. He hasn't been yeah. on in a while, but Luke Moore of the Football Ramble will be with me to talk yeah. uh, all things the soccer. Football Ramble is like the English total soccer show. Eh, but not as good. <laughs> not as good, but much more successful. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the one. That's the one. <laughs> so there you go. That's your Thursday and Friday total soccer show mm-hmm. coming up. We hope you'll stick with us. We hope you'll listen. We do. If you've enjoyed the show... Please give us an iTunes review. Mm-hmm. We all, I haven't asked one for a while, so I thought maybe it'd be good. To I didn't even mention politics today, so like hopefully we don't get any more yeah. one stars on that one. We just reported the Iron Front flag news, right? Uh, that might be enough. Yeah, <laughs> that might be enough for someone to be triggered. You mentioned a thing that is vaguely political. Yeah, I'm writing a review. Yeah, I will say anyone who leaves us a with one, only index fingers. Is how anyone who leaves us a one star review mm-hmm. complaining that we talked about the Iron Front thing mm-hmm. in Major League Soccer? One, it's a soccer issue. It's soccer yep. news. It's happening in soccer. Two, you just outed yourself as a fascist <laughs> via an iTunes review. Wow. Just want to put that out there. 
Uh, and cue the one-star review. Perfect. All right, cool. Cool, cool, cool. cool, cool, well, cool then cool, cool. More, more people outing themselves. Lovely. All right, Tyler Rockwell, thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. Right back at you, buddy. You non-fascist you. Listeners, thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you again very soon. <laughs>